This week on New Mexico in Focus, native artists deal with a market season that's gone online. Feedback from artists is that, you know, they're, they're social creatures, you know, they can't help but express themselves. And our land heads to the Four Corners to revisit the Gold King mine spill. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. It's been five years since a crew trying to excavate a southwestern Colorado mine caused a toxic orange plume to flow down the Animas and San Juan rivers. We'll revisit the spill and its impact. We also have a great interview with a high school student whose jaw-dropping science project won her a quarter of a million dollars. The line looks at the rift between the state Republican Party and the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association. But we start with COVID-19 and a new kind of back to school this August. Hey, happy and healthy Friday to one and all. This is the New Mexico in Focus podcast for Friday. August 14th. A lot on the show this week, as you heard from that little introduction there from host Gene Grant. And we will dive right into it this week. I am the executive producer, Kevin McDonald, here at NMPBS. We thank you, as always, for subscribing, for downloading and listening. Encourage you to get your friends and family aware, get them downloading and listening as well. Take it with you. Of course, you can see the show every Friday night at 7 on New Mexico PBS, channel 5.1. Also on NewMexicoInFocus.org. And you can find clips and segments on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. Wherever you get your content, we are there for you. We're going to kick things off with the line this week. Our panel is regular Tom Garrity, as well as former State Senator Dee Dee Feldman and Merritt Allen from Vox Optima. PR company here in Albuquerque. And of course, as most of you parents are already very well aware, school started back up in a time unlike any other this week. Uh, Of course, school is all virtual until at least after Labor Day. And a lot of adjustments have to be made in families all over the state to make that happen. But uh, we wanted to get a little more into that and find out what folks are doing to try to make this work for at least a little while for however long it takes, as well as update our COVID-19 status. So here now is Jean Grant and our line panelists. It hardly seems fair to call this back to school season. It's just so different from anything we've ever seen. But class has started, despite the debate that continues over how soon students will be learning in person. The Line Opinion panel is here to share some thoughts. Joining me is former state senator and line regular Dee Dee Feldman. Another regular is with me this week. That is Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. And we welcome frequent guest and owner of Vox Optima Public Relations, Merritt Allen. Merritt, thank you for being here. Thank you all for Zooming in with us. Hey, Tom, it's interesting. At the same time, the governor was telling us last week she expects New Mexico to be able to send kids back to school this fall. APS board president David Piercy was telling the Albuquerque Journal that he didn't think there was a, quote, a prayer, end quote, of getting kids in the classroom in the near term. And you as a former APS co-superintendent, what's your sense of how the board and the governor are arriving at different conclusions here. Well, and there haven't been many times in, in any kind of recent history, or even long-term history, where APS and the sitting governor have necessarily gotten along. Good point. Um, so yeah, there's always been that inherent conflict. But um, you know, I think that in this particular case, uh, you know, APS is is really at the mercy of whatever the governor says uh, and what their PED secretary has to say. Uh, and I have some things to say about the PED secretary as far as uh, workplace and really being in contact with New Mexico. But to answer your question, I think that, you know, the uh, the August 19th board meeting will really come into play to see, you know, just how much of a, you know, uh, how much of a course that APS wants to set. I think while every all of us are getting caught up in the, um, you know, in whether or not you know schools should open you know schools are open now uh, and they're open on a virtual basis and so i hope that aps and those policy discussions 
um, that those are only taking place at the upper levels because the, the rank and file, the folks, the teachers and the principals really right now don't need to be engaged in that particular discussion. They need to be focused on really helping students to be successful. Mm -hmm. Didi, uh, Tom mentioned this meeting coming up on the 19th of this month, and you've got board president David Piercy, but you've got, you have also other board members who are making it pretty clear they're a little squeamish about back in school, and they're talking about October or beyond, January or beyond. What's your sense of it? Same question, basically, I, I just asked Tom. Your sense of where the board is now and how influential that's going to be on this final decision with our state and our governor? Well, I think it is important, and um, I think that they will probably uh, stand up to the governor, and they've done that before. I think they're hearing from teachers, uh, from teachers who are getting increasingly worried as they hear what happens to other schools around the country that have opened up completely, or even in a hybrid model where uh, they've opened up for a couple of days and you know suddenly a second grader gets COVID or is, or is uh, positive. And then uh, as in uh, Atlanta, 690 uh, students are quarantined uh, and, and staff are quarantined for two weeks. So you know the on again, off again, on again, off again, which seems inevitable almost, um, is, has got to be weighing on their minds. Uh, and I think- are, 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 Didi, Didi, are you surprised that the board president came out so strongly? I mean, it was so definitive what he said. Did that surprise you at all? Yes, it did surprise me. Mm -hmm. I, I, was, uh, I thought there would be more division on the board, uh, but there was one board member that said, no matter what happens, I'm not voting for opening the schools, um, as well as the, the chairman of the board. So um, I, I do not know what the position of the teachers union is on this. I think that's significant uh, because uh, around the country, the AFT, for example, the American Federation of Teachers, has given their uh, local unions permission to strike if they are forced back into the classroom um, and they don't want and they don't feel that schools are safe. I think our, that's the ultimate goal is safe schools. And um, there are many routes to that though. Mm -hmm. Hey, Merrick, uh, Didi mentioned, Senator mentioned as teachers, of course. And I want to get your feelings about this. I hear from a lot of teachers. I think a lot of us as panelists and parts of the show, we hear from lots of different teachers. What's your sense of it? Because I think Senator Feldman has it right. If the teachers in mass, and who knows what that means in, New, in a New Mexico context, APS, whoever, decides they're just not going in, where do we, how does it work at that point if teachers really, really get a loud voice here and say, we don't like the way this is going, we're not going in? Well, I, I think it's actually just the tip of the iceberg of questions that have not been answered or addressed or planned for. Um, that's certainly one scenario. I think another scenario is what do we do about teachers who have young children and are single parents and there's no daycare? What do we do about uh, children who are the children of single parents and does that parent quit their job to supervise their child in distance learn in remote learning? What about children who don't have access to computers or rural children who don't have access to broadband? What there, there just seems to be no plan for any of this, whether it's opening schools back up or doing all remote learning, much less hybrid learning. There, there are so many unanswered questions. I just don't even know how we're starting the school year. There, there is no good solution. And what's more upsetting to me, these are very basic questions that continue to go unanswered. So no, I'm, I'm actually not surprised that the, uh, that the uh, board uh, you know, chairman st uh, stood up like this because any lifetime educator administrator would be wanting answers to at least one of these questions. And so far there are none. Mm -hmm. Tom, we've got colleges open, certainly. We know what's going on there, UNM, state, all, all over the, uh, our state. 
Uh, here at UNM, dorms are open, but all the rooms are now singles, which is very interesting when you think about it. And a whole schedule and rules for move-in day and all this other stuff. What's your concern when it comes to colleges and the environment at college? Well, that's a, that's a very real issue because colleges, universities are really right now grappling with a huge financial toll uh, as far as, you know, how are they going to build enrollment when they can't sell and provide that college experience of that socialization? Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's really bringing into a crisis of, uh, of, of you know, how much, how, what is the college education worth if you don't have that? Uh, and so, you know, you have, a, you have a lot of those kind of discussions, but, you know, I think that, um, you know, universities are addressing it and kind of the thoughtfulness that I've seen from the university perspective um, is very different than the thoughtfulness that I've seen in the public school perspective. Um, it seems as if the universities are a lot more prepared uh, on how to address COVID and COVID issues, uh, as opposed to what we're seeing uh, play out with the Albuquerque public schools. Uh, Merritt brought up a lot of great questions and I was listening to those. I was thinking, well, why is it that, you know, six, those questions have not been answered for six months? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, th these are, it's, they're very complicated answers, but you know what, you have six months to put together an answer. And uh, it seems as if the universities have done a better job of really kind of grappling with that. Um, when it comes to college sports uh, and fall sports specifically, uh, you know, I think that the right decisions are being made. You know, I, I love college football. You know, I love that whole college experience. But right now, in, unless there's until a vaccine is out there, we just have to get used to life as we know it now and not life as we wished it was um, now. Uh, so, you know, it's just a lot of that planning aspect. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, Merritt, when you think about it, UNM, as we read it, has 144 beds reserved for isolation. They've also got a whole scheme in place for out-of-state students coming into New Mexico about quarantining and all that kind of a thing. But we're talking about young people here. <laughs> They're not necessarily the best decision makers and the best, you know, rule followers. Well, it sounds it's, like you work in PR, too. Right. <laughs> exactly. What do you think about what do you think about that though? Is is it a recipe for disaster when you just think about college kids, or can well, we actually I, get our I, arms? I think around? it's a recipe for survival because without on-campus residents, colleges cannot afford to go with uh, go without those fees. Mm -hmm. uh, tuition only, non-resident uh, students, and also you know what's the point when, when, with so many online institutions now whose degree means the same as a UNM degree, how do you differentiate that? So absolutely, it's it's not a recipe for disaster, it's a recipe uh, for, for survival. But I, I wanna pick up Tom's point. I have, a, I have a different view of the major college sports, particularly uh, football and basketball. I think for too long, we have used college uh, football and basketball as uh, minor leagues for uh, our professional sports. And the athletes are, are unpaid. If they're injured, uh, they're, they're, they can have problems for life. Uh, they don't have the benefits of a professional sports union. Um, and I think that the notion of the student athlete has been romanticized for too long. And I think this could be an important movement for professional sports and moving to a baseball and hockey model of minor leagues that are really healthier for the sport and the myth of the student athlete, which is really risky for the kid. Um, you can lose your scholarship and really wreck your body at the age of 18. And this might be an interesting move in the right direction for young people. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot, Didi, we'll finish with, on this subject and with you, you know, a lot of young athletes are very concerned that this is something they've worked towards, build towards, it's a career for them, and to lose out scholarships, to lose things out. How do we tell kids that, look, you know, life goes on, basically, there's things to do just because it didn't work out in this lap, so to speak. That's hard to do when you get through to a 20-year-old, but we've got to find a way, it seems to me. I know, and my, and my heart really goes out to those kids who mm -hmm. have been building to this for years and feel that the opportunity will slip by now and they will uh, they will lose everything um, but I think that you know we have to also remember that football is not everything and uh, we are we are we're going to need to change our entire model here our entire thinking about higher education and um, how it's delivered, how much it costs, 
whether uh, football is worth the cost uh, and, the, uh, and the injuries and the danger that it poses to kids. Uh, and maybe there should be another different uh, system. Gotcha. Hey, we're out of time on this one. Our land is next. Then this group is back to talk about why top New Mexico Republicans are attacking the head of the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association. Always excited to bring you our land each and every month here on New Mexico in Focus. It's our environmental journalism segment that airs on the second Friday of each month. And we've got an extra special one in store for you this month for a lot of different reasons. This year marks five years since the Gold King mine spill. Hard to believe it has been that long. And I'm sure a lot of those images are locked in your brain of the orange toxic flume, the minerals coming out of the mine as they just inched and worked their way down the Animas River in northwest New Mexico. There's been a lot of scientists and research that have spent the last five years identifying exactly what the impacts of that spill and those minerals in the Animas River have been. And so we wanted to get an update on what that research has found and how we can take better care of our rivers here in the state. Another thing that's really exciting about this piece, if you want to, and we always encourage you to go to our Our Land Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube pages to watch these pieces because it's just a stunning visual piece. We were thrilled to work with Lighthawk Conservation Flying. This is all part of a grant we got from the Water Desk out of the University of Colorado Boulder and their Environmental Journalism Center. But as part of that, they hooked us up with a pilot with Lighthawk who flew the length of the Animus, basically starting around Aztec up to Silverton, which is right where the spill started, back down and over to Shiprock. And so there's lots of great aerial photography in this piece. And as well, the photographer and pilot actually had three GoPro cameras with her on that flight. And we wanted to take full advantage of that footage and our great New Mexico landscape. So you will also find a edited version of basically that entire flight. So you can follow along the beautiful Animus River uh, up again from Aztec up to Silverton, back down and over to uh, Shiprock. So we encourage you to go check those out. Just great pieces for you. But right now, let's kick it on over to Laura Paskus for this month's Arland. You probably remember when the Animus River turned bright orange in the summer of 2015 after waste from a long abandoned mine poured into the river causing fish kills and coating the banks with heavy metals. Five years after the Gold King mine spill, this month's episode of Our Land looks back on what trouble the, the spill wrought and what we've learned since then. Correspondent Laura Paskus filed this story with help from a grant by the Water Desk, an independent journalism initiative based at the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism. And of course, we brought the drone along, but we're even more grateful to have stunning aerial footage above the Rockies from Lighthawk Conservation Flying. Here's Laura. On August 5th, 2015, crews working to reopen an abandoned mine in the mountains of southern Colorado breached a containment wall, and three million gallons of mining waste spewed into Cement Creek, a tributary of the Animas River. They were trying to reopen the Gold King Mine to clean it up, but the accident sent acid mine drainage down the river, full of cadmium, lead, zinc, mercury, iron, and manganese. Susan Palko-Shra remembers hearing about the spill and then waiting for the sludge to come down the river. It was late afternoon and uh, we were standing right by the river and originally there was just maybe a foot wide of orange in the middle of the current and you could trace it where the current went. And that passed maybe 15, 20 minutes, it got a little bit wider and it was starting to get dusk. And I remembered thinking, oh, that's not so bad. And so then we kept watching it and it progressed to have the entire river, almost a neon orange. In the aftermath of the Gold King mine spill, there were lawsuits. The state of New Mexico and the Navajo Nation sued the Environmental Protection Agency 
whose contractors had caused the spill. There was also funding for studies, studies looking at things like how the spill had affected fish and wildlife in the biotic community. There were also longer-term studies to look at things like how that spill in the river might have affected the groundwater below. Susan and her husband became involved in community discussions and they joined a state study to see if the spill affected the local aquifer. For two years, hydrologist Talon Newton with the New Mexico Bureau of Geology sampled about two dozen private wells. Well, the obvious goal was to assess uh, any impacts to groundwater from these, uh, you know, the contaminated river water that was uh, flowing in the Animas River. And so in order to do that, though, we needed to characterize the system and figure out what controls the water chemistry, groundwater chemistry in the first place. Learning about the relationship between the river, irrigation canals, and the groundwater helped the crew understand the toxic spill. The good news is we, we didn't see any obvious impacts from the Gold King Mine spill. They weren't the only ones looking for answers. The Animas flows into the San Juan River, which winds across the western Navajo Nation. Carletta Chief is a hydrologist with the University of Arizona. She also started studying the spill's impacts right away. She and her team tested more than 60 households in three Navajo communities, looking for lead and arsenic, which can have long-term health impacts. They also convened focus groups and for years afterwards talked to Diné farmers who rely upon the waters of the San Juan. We found that there are over 40 different ways that the Navajo people use the San Juan River, um, not just for recreation, not just for farming, but they also use it for culture, for spiritual practices, for arts and crafts and many more. For hundreds of years, people have put their hands into the soil, planted heirloom seeds, and relied daily upon the waters of the San Juan. They want to know that their children and their grandchildren can do the same, safely. In this study, there wasn't that immediate short-term environmental and health impact. The cultural impact and the mental and financial impact is a longer impact that I believe is still present today. Chief says all scientists who study environmental and health impacts must first understand how people relate to their lands and waters and how they see the risks they face. The Sawa River is considered a male deity and it provides um, water for farming, water to um, grow just natural plants used for cultural practices and even medicine, and then also for the ecosystem there where people use, um, they do engage in hunting there. The water itself is very important to the Navajo people. And so seeing this water contaminated had a huge cultural impact to the people. She says scientists and policymakers need to listen to tribal leaders and community members and keep doing that. Because even today, the spill highlights bigger problems. Upstream, there are more than 20,000 abandoned mines, mines excavated and then left for the federal government to clean up. And the problems that led to that spill five years ago are not unique. Today, Susan Palko Shaw is confident the river is safe but a recent headline made her wonder about the future. The EPA is proposing to store toxic waste from abandoned mines, including Gold King, near Silverton, Colorado. That dump would take in about 6,000 cubic yards of toxic sludge each year. I hope and pray that there is wisdom that it is away from the watershed, because clearly we do have to deal with the mining waste, but we can deal with it with caution and wisdom, and we can protect what's most valuable. And in the desert Southwest, we all know water is of essential value. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Pascas.
Back now to the line opinion panel, an interesting political dust-up here in the state this week, which has to do with a war of words, if you will, between the state Republican Party and a couple of Republican legislative leaders. Uh, And on the other side is Ryan Flynn, who is the former Environment Department Secretary here for New Mexico under Governor Susana Martinez. He now heads up the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association, a powerful entity here in the state. And at issue is some comments Ryan Flynn made when asked about Congresswoman Xochitl Torres-Small from the 2nd Congressional District. And uh, they were favorable comments in terms of Representative Torres-Small and her opposing a fracking ban in New Mexico, which would have huge economic effects on our state. But folks felt like those comments were a little bit out of line and out of step. Uh, And so we want to dive into that and see what's really afoot here in this war of words back and forth. Send it back now to Gene and the line panelists. When's the last time you remember Republicans going after an oil and gas lobbying group? It's been a minute. Last week, GOP Chair Steve Pierce and legislative leaders Jim Townsend and Stuart Engel sent a blistering letter published in the op-ed pages of newspapers across the state. Their target, New Mexico Oil and Gas Association Chief Ryan Flynn. And Merritt, I'm excited to get you on this uh, subject here. His apparent crime was saying something nice about a Democrat. That would be Xochitl Torres Small, of course. Is this worth a public rebuke? What was that about? Well, I mean, on first glance, yeah, it, it, um, it, it could look like, oh my gosh, those crazy Republicans bite in the hand that feeds them. Oh, that's nuts. There's a lot more to this soap opera than just this event. Uh, this has been an ongoing uh, battle, if you will, and it does center on that uh, the second congressional district race. Right. As you might recall, the uh, previous chairman of uh, New Mexico Oil and Gas Association was Yvette Harrell's uh, primary opponent, Claire Chase. And the Oil and Gas Association is just that. It's an industry association. It's not the industry itself. So I think what Republican leadership, and these are all, you know, Eastern, Southern New Mexicans who are in the industry themselves. They know these families. They know the industry. I think what they're saying is, you know, we can go make another association. Y'all aren't the only game in town. And if you look at the campaign finance reports, the two Republican primary candidates were about even, you know, they, they split up the money. And of course, Torres Small outraised both of them by a lot. And she's the one person who doesn't need the money. So uh, I, I, I definitely think it was a shot across the, the bow and saying, we, we, don't, we don't need y'all. Uh, we can we can get to your uh, donors another way, uh, and I think that's why it was made so public. I, I, another player in there. I, I, I got to ask you though before before you get to that second bit there, I got to ask you on on the messaging alone. I'm hearkening back to Tom's point about us, you know, three PR people on the <laughs> on the panel today. Did they make an effective case? However, did did, did they make a case against that? Look. You don't prop the other side. You never prop the other side ever. Did they? Did they make that case? I I feel it was a little over the top, but okay. Uh, abs- you know, absolutely though. Um, the state GOP is all in on this race. This is really the. Uh, this is the only race I see them really putting a lot of time and effort into this election cycle. So they are going to go all in. But um, let's also remember. Torres Small is one voice in Congress, and her opposition to a ban on fracking probably wouldn't make a big difference in the Democratic House Congressional Caucus. What's really important is in New Mexico and what happens. And let's also not forget that the Speaker of the New Mexico House, his family law firm, does a lot of work with New Mexico oil and gas. And I I'm just wondering how that plays and how what might be going on behind the scenes there as well. So I think it you, made you, you actually answered the question that uh, we've been wondering in the office about that. Actually, there's something else going on here that just seems, you know, uh, a little off. Let me get to I'll come back to you, Merritt, in just a second. Let me get to Senator Feldman. 
Um, honestly, is is Ryan Flynn doing a little bit of tea leave reading in CD two right now? It, it, I know we're sort of out on a limb on that, but what's your what's your sense of that? I'm still trying to parse why he would come out and say these things. Well, I think that um, the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association considers itself the most powerful organization in New Mexico, not just the most powerful oil and gas association, but actually Ryan Flynn, who was the environment secretary under Susana Martinez, it's worth noting, um, actually said that. That was in 2018, that was his goal to make this association the most powerful uh, association in New Mexico. And he did it. Uh, the, the association has, uh, it was, was studied by New Mexico Ethics Watch and uh, New Mexico Common Cause and found to have given $11.5 million in contributions and also in expenditures fielded, um, and that's in New Mexico alone, and uh, fielded at, at any one time seven lobbyists uh, before the legislature. Um, it's, it's, an, it's, uh, it's acting like a trade association as well as a PAC. It has an associated PAC, Power the Future, uh, which, whose goal is to attack environmentalists, it seems. Um, but they also give to Democrats. Uh, they gave uh, plenty to uh, the Speaker of the House they gave to the Democratic candidate for governor. Uh, it's not like they are bound to only give to Republicans and support Republicans. They, they're like any other lobbyists. They play both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. um, and now for the Republicans to say they own it uh, and they ought to be uh, beholden to the Republican leadership, it's a stretch, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Tom, let me read you something I thought was interesting, an op-ed published in the New Mexican penned by uh, Steve Pierce, I mentioned a second ago. Yeah, he accused Mr. Flynn of using the Oil and Gas Association as, quote, a political weapon. The quote is, getting Namoga involved in this race is not only unethical, but also potentially illegal and risks permanent damage to the association's reputation, end quote. What do you make of that? I mean, how, how, what permanent reputation loss could be from what Ryan Flynn had to say? You know, it's, uh, it, it was definitely a shot uh, over the bow of Namoga that uh, uh, Steve Pierce wanted to be able to, to set. Uh, you know, is it, and it was, a, it was a, it's a, I wouldn't say a veiled threat. I think it was just a threat to say, hey, look, you know, anticipate legal action if you don't change course now. Um, I think it's very uh, interesting, though, because to Merritt's point, and knowing uh, what Didi said about Ryan Flynn's background as environment secretary, uh, he's done a fantastic job with the Oil and Gas Association, really catering to um, his membership base. Uh, and so he, he's very strategic, he's very smart, and um, the, his end is not CD2. His end is New Mexico. Um, because, you know, there's so much at play at the Nash, at the federal level with regards to, you know, energy policy, that really the only thing he can impact at this point in time is what happens in the state of New Mexico. And, you know, he's probably, some would say he's making a very smart political play of basically making sure that when, um, you know, in the anticipation of, um, you know, a more Democrat presence, um, he wants to make sure that uh, he has his bases covered. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's a smart political play. I thought it was interesting that uh, Mr. Pierce decided to, you know, make an issue out of it. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we'll hear any more on this, but uh, Ryan Flint, a very smart strategist, and I wouldn't discount him in the least if I was Steve Pierce. You know, interestingly, the other name I mentioned, Merritt, was uh, Stuart Engel, Senator Engel, and he's got a reputation of being fairly temperate and working with Democrats now and again, too. I, I, were you surprised that he signed on to this? Yes, absolutely. And I think it just, um, they wanted to show a unified front in the, um, in the legislature among, uh, you know, uh, the complete legislative caucus. Uh, but no, I, I did, uh, I did find that surprising, but this is, this is the old Martinez Pierce fight. 
Um, those two factions have not gotten along for years. And it's a shame because when in New Mexico, when Republican factions argue, the loser in general are Republicans. And that that's how it pans out in elections. And so uh, I, I think Tom's, Tom's point is valid. Uh, the, the biggest issue impacting New Mexico right now and New Mexico oil and gas right now is fracking. And uh, say what you will, but we are a poor state with a not diverse economy and a fracking ban would put us under for a long, long time. And without, and if you look at 2020, without some, Democrat, some democratic uh, yielding on the fracking issue, starting with Torres Small um, and getting some buy-in at the state level. Without that, um, I, I think we're gonna be in it for some real tough times now through 2030. And so uh, that, that point is well taken. And, uh, you know, the Republicans, uh, of, of course, what Republican um, at this point is going to vote for a fracking ban in New Mexico? I would say exactly zero. Uh, it's not going to happen. And so you tend to not court the people who are already on your side. That's a good point. Didi, we've got about a, a minute here. I just want to follow up with you on the uh, question I had about Senator Ingle. It's, it's tough sometimes when you're in a party and you want to do, you know, kind of follow where your party leader's going. But were you surprised that he signed on to this letter as well? Yes, I was surprised. My, my, mm -hmm. uh, uh, my assumption is that he was persuaded to do so okay. for party unity. Uh, but I want to comment on something that Merritt said, and that is a fracking ban does not have too much support among the Democrats in the legislature either. Uh, Antoinette Lopez-Cedillo had a bill that was not even heard before committee. Um, and so um, I think that, um, you know, th there may be some difference between the governor and the legislature on the on that count, uh, but the uh, Namoka is is um, counting votes and um, actually uh, supporting Democrats who will be committee chairs, who right. will be leaders in the legislature. Well, they, 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 is not a position of power. That's a good point there. We have to hit the stop button. Sorry, guys, but great insights from all of you this week. We really appreciate it. Thanks for reading up and offering all of your thoughts. All right, going to finish off the show this week with a couple of really great interviews, interesting interviews. The first one has to do with Santa Fe Indian Market, which should be going on right now in Santa Fe and is still going on, as a matter of fact, just as with most things in COVID-19, in a way it never has before. Not possible to hold the traditional Indian market, so they've moved a lot of things online. First and foremost, of course, you can view artwork and order artwork from these amazing talented artists online. They're also doing all the other auxiliary things in creative virtual fashion, things like fashion shows. And so we wanted to get the lowdown on how folks are adapting, those involved with the Indian market, and encourage you to go and support your local native artists however you can. And so here is correspondent Antonia Gonzalez. Joining me now are Eugene Tapahi, Carl Duncan, and Kim Pion. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you. Thank you. And Kim, the Santa Fe India Market, which normally attracts international visitors in person um, to Santa Fe, New Mexico, this year is virtual. You're having events and hundreds of indigenous artists selling their work. How's the online event helping continue to keep attention on the native art world? Well, so this was definitely a scenario where we had to create brand new repro reprogramming as far as a show. It's just all virtual. So beginning on August 1st, going out through the whole month, through the 31st, we have created different things to bring people to our website. And so that could be interviews with artists, that could be you know, um, just different things that they can check out. And then we have like marquee events that we're presenting as well. And so those are on a, the calendar of events on our website. But all of that is truly to, to develop a scenario where 
uh, people who are interacting with our website are driven to our marketplace for our artists. And so that's the, that's the whole objective in, in what we created. And Eugene, in normal non-COVID-19 times, you would be traveling around to different art shows. What does that mean to you as far as it comes to being um, fine arts and, and selling your photography? It's, it's been a, a huge um, impact on, on what I do because um, my, my photography is high-end photography so um, and fine art. Um, so a lot of my sales come from in-person so that they can actually see the product and see how um, everything's museum quality, everything's on film and, you know, just, just to see the object and then they, they realize that it's worth that much money. And so they're more willing to, to buy. Um, when it's online, it's a lot harder to, um, to explain to them what it looks like and then also to, to hear the stories. Um, the biggest thing for a lot of these um, people who buy, they wanna come they want to meet the artists. They want to know their story. They want to know the story behind um, their the their art. Um, how how is this significant to to them and to myself? And how did we create it? And how did we um, produce it? And what what went into it? You know, and and your own personal story behind the the the, the artwork. And I think that's what really makes people want to buy. And then you know, and then the atmosphere. The atmosphere of having all these artists and and just being able to be around them and being able to interact with them. I think that's the part that's really um, difficult for a lot of our artists now that um, are trying to do it virtually. It's, it's kind of hard even like um, just doing these interviews too, you know, we're doing all virtual and it's kind of hard to not sit there and be able to, you know, be able to lean on each other when we, you know, when we do interviews and things. So it's been difficult, but um, you know, I've been making sales here and there and, you know, keeping myself going and I'm, I do this full time. So it's, it's difficult to be able to to know that all my shows for the whole year have been canceled and to, to find new creative ways. And, and, and then also just I, I really want to thank my collectors who have been with me since the beginning that have realized that this is hard and they come back and they buy because they know the product already. And that's the thing that I, that's keeping me going is my, my collectors too, so. And Carl, you, um, hearing what Eugene has to say, you also are in contact with a lot of artists and you've been, the Poe Cultural Center, which is located near Santa Fe at Puake, has been holding virtual events pretty much for months, um, including featuring artists. What is tourism and the much needed tourism that public communities and native artists rely on? What are you hearing with the COVID-19 impacts? Yeah, when COVID first happened, you know, one of our first things we wanted to do was immediately help the artists. You know, a lot of artists said they haven't been able to make a sale, you know, since the herd show. Um, and so since then we've set up an artist fund and had over a hundred artists uh, been awarded uh, emergency relief grants. And so we've heard a lot of stories, people saying that they were unable to get their uh, art supplies because of normal stores that they got or travel restrictions. Uh, they were out of that, uh, those materials. So something as simple as, you know, the, the materials to make the art, you know, weren't there. Um, a lot of the different studios, we closed our art studios here. So um, a lot of our classes kind of stopped. Uh, we took them online and became virtual. Uh, but, you know, we understand that's different uh, than actually having it uh, in person and having those opportunities to uh, machinery and different um, uh, studios uh, equipment uh, that we provide. Um, and so we've kind of shifted to try to find other opportunities. Uh, we started a online uh, Native Artist Marketplace, and we have about 1,900 members on that on Facebook. And uh, we allow the artist to show their work and present their work and have direct sales to the public. And so we try to promote that um, and promote them. So we're trying to find other ways. Uh, we have weekly talking circles to kind of talk about how things are going to have that face-to-face -face contact um, and just share resources. Uh, we also have a lot of uh, online Zoom trainings to talk about artist trainings, how to market in this new shift uh, to online. How do you set up a Facebook uh, page? How do you sell online? Um, how do you photograph your art? So we've done a lot to try to um, support artists in this new way and kind of are continuing to have that discussion of what is the new landscape 
and how can we uh, be ready for that to be ready for them. And Kim, hearing from both Carl and Eugene about some of the challenges and difficulties for artists. I mean, when you go to Santa Fe India Market, if you're, you know, jewelry making, people want to try it on and also hear the stories, but also maybe clothing. Um, part of the fashion and other events, um, film, there's a lot of different things that go into Santa Fe India Market. Go ahead and expand on that, Kim. Yeah, so we, um, we definitely are having a virtual um, fashion show, for example. And so that event was actually um, recorded this last Sunday and it will debut this next Sunday. And so the, these are just events that we've had in the past um, physically. And so we've had to be very creative in how we create them virtually. Uh, the same thing is true for our gala event. The gala event is going to take place on the 22nd. That's actually in a 3D platform where we go into a space that is um, called Indian World, Indian World, and we go in as avatars. And so it just is a, a way for us to create a social environment, but also something fun and creative. Um, we also have like our grand finale, for example, is with a band called Snotty Nose uh, Res Kids out of Canada. So that's a recorded event where people can come on and watch it. And then beyond, beyond Indian Market, we're also going to have some creative um, scenarios where we're bringing people back to our website. Um, one of the things that we invested in as an organization is we actually created a platform for artists to develop their own websites. They have their own domain names and so this is a scenario where we've really tried to come alongside our artists in, in the sense of business development. And, and so in reference to that, it, it's, it's been a lot of um, strategic planning for us because, you know, there's a lot of artists who have resisted, you know, going online. And so it's just a time where I think all of us, um, whether we're representing an organization who represents artists, we're all at a place where we're trying to figure out how to, how to create uh, prosperity for artists. And right now it is online. And so there's just a lot of um, movement that's going on in that. And there's gonna be a lot of training and development even beyond Indian market to, to continue to support artists. And of course, COVID-19 has not stopped artists from creating and um, we're seeing some really interesting ways of using technology through art as well. Eugene, what are some of the ways that you've been using creativity during this COVID-19 period? Um, well, I, you know, um, my background, I got my, my degree in graphic design. So I was, I was already set up for, for online sales. I was already had a website, my website's out there and um, I already had a presence. I mean, the biggest thing for me is right now is I'm, I'm, I'm pushing more direct sales, um, doing more email kind of blast, um, getting people excited about images that I've already captured that haven't, that I was hoping to debut, you know, at the Santa Fe Indian market. And even the, the, the images that I wanted to have for, you know, competition, I mean, I want to, I'm highlighting those on um, emails and stuff like that. But I think um, for me, it's, it's been really fun in the sense that, you know, it, it, it's technology and it's been great too, because I have fellow artists that knew I was a graphic designer and web developer. So it was really fun to be able to have them call me and ask me for help. And I was able to help them and be able to help other artists to understand, you know, this is, this is the way it's going to be for a while. And I think that's the thing that um, for me, I, it was really fun to see um, other people actually moving into the new age and, and, and being able to help the, old, the older people to, to grasp it and to help them. And I think that's, for me, that's probably the best thing for me that this is happening is that I was able to be a tool for other artists to help them. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, my creative ways of doing things, I've been doing it already. I mean, I've been doing a lot, um, I got a lot of presence on Instagram and Facebook and um, I started a new project right now. It's called um, Art Heals the, the Jingle dress project and we're, we're, we're going around and, and um, I'm taking images of, of um, jingle dress dancers that are um, all over the world and we're trying to heal in that sense. So I kind of like redirected my, you know, my, my, my thought process with the pandemic. And if people don't realize it, but a hundred years ago, the um, jingle dress dance was um, 
originated during the last pandemic 100 years ago, the flu. And so I kind of put, you know, historical value and then also my landscape, um, you know, my photography together to try and make this um, wonderful project that we're working on now. So it's been really fun in the sense that it takes me away from the real world and realizing that, you know, I'm not making sales, but doesn't mean I can't be creative and I can't keep doing what I'm doing. And I think that's a great thing about a lot of Native artists. We're resilient. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll keep it going. And hopefully everybody else out there will be, um, you know, helping each other also like I have. And Carl, talking about that resilience and that creativity, um, what's been the response to the virtual events that the Poe Cultural Center has been holding? You know, everybody wanted to, you know, socialize and to feel that they were supported and um, that they weren't alone in this. And so a lot of the feedback has been, you know, keep keep doing your online uh, Facebook live talking circles uh, and that they support, you know, each other. Basically, we hear each other's stories, you know, how we went through this pandemic and how we're trying to do our best to get through it. And, you know, we just continue to encourage all artists to make art and people who support Native artists to do what they can to support organizations and Native artists directly. And so, you know, the, the feedback from artists is that, you know, they're, they're social creatures, you know, they can't help but express themselves. And, you know, being in this pandemic and lockdown and, you know, trying to stay safe, uh, we try to find creative ways to connect. Uh, one of the artists that I saw uh, from San Alfonso is doing um, Facebook bingo uh, from his artist page. And so he's engaging people to come join that at the same time he's marketing himself. And being creative like that, trying to engage in new ways, you know, it's kind of going to be what the future holds. You know, how do we engage each other remotely? Well, I want to thank you all for joining us this week on New Mexico in Focus here on New Mexico PBS. And um, good luck to everybody out there and happy virtual Santa Fe Indian Market. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, and we want to end this week with some good news. We all know we can use some more of that in these uh, uncertain times of COVID-19. Uh, word came out about a week or two ago about an award-winning New Mexico high school student talking about the Regeneron Science Competition and a Los Alamos student, Lillian Peterson, took first place in that contest. And on top of the uh, bragging rights, she also brought down a cool quarter million dollars, which you'll find in this interview, what she plans to spend that money on, as well as the innovative uh, approach behind her science fair project and how it can benefit folks here in New Mexico as well as all around the world. Definitely a person to look out for in the future. Sad to say, for New Mexico, she's headed off to college in a couple weeks in Massachusetts, but we all hope that she will make and find her way back to New Mexico in the future to put this great research and this great science to work here in our state. She's got some great advice for other students, especially during COVID times, times of virtual learning. And so we're thrilled to bring you this interview with Lillian Peterson. Here's correspondent Laura Paskus with that interview. And the first place winner and the recipient of a $250,000 award, Lillian K. Peterson. I can't believe what just happened that I just won first place at the world's most prestigious and oldest science fair. Lillian, you're the first place winner of the Regeneron Science Talent Search. What was your winning project? So I created a model to predict crop yields in every country in Africa three to four months before the harvest. This is very important because developing countries often lack monitoring and reporting of weather and crop health. So my system could allow aid organizations to respond faster to potential food crises. And so what motivated you to take on a project like this one? Well, nine years ago, my family adopted my three younger siblings, all of whom faced food insecurity in their childhoods. When I read about a drought in Ethiopia in which 18 million people were at risk of starvation, 
I knew that this crisis would not end with the new harvest or the influx of food aid because malnutrition is lifelong and hinders brain development. So I became motivated to monitor droughts as they develop. So the, the ceremony to celebrate the winners had to be postponed and then eventually was moved entirely online. So you didn't get to meet up with your peers and other winners in Washington, DC. How did they make that up to all of you and what did you get to do instead? Well, I would say that Society for Science and the Public and Regeneron actually did a very good job at connecting all of the finalists remotely. They, first of all, sent us boxes and boxes of stuff, including a backdrop and camera and lights to make it so we had like our own little production in our home. And then they hosted lots of game nights and virtual dance parties so that we could connect. And also, I'm going to go to Boston in the fall where I will attend Harvard. And there I'll be able to meet up with almost half of the finalists who will be in the same area. That's so amazing. Um, so what is next for this project? Are you envisioning more research or its implementation? What comes next? So I have presented this work at 11 aid and research organizations, and I have stayed in touch with them over the years. In fact, I just talked with top researchers at the International Food Policy Research Institute. And I'm giving a panel seminar with them uh, tomorrow. So I hope to continue to uh, work with other aid organizations to uh, implement this project in whatever ways it's needed. What's the reaction of the science community been to your work, both here in your community around New Mexico and nationally and internationally as well? Um, I would say that uh, aid organizations have been very impressed with my work and they like the idea of thinking on a larger scale uh, zooming out and creating a system that can predict crop yields in every climate, country, and crop. Because many current systems, um, it's very difficult to scale across large areas. So that's what's so unique about my model. So take me down on the ground for a second. And um, let's envision, if you would, kind of a, a, a crop having been planted and, and, and what happens next, kind of where are we? How would we use your project? Um, what would that look like? So I monitor the crop health during the growing season for every country in Africa. And I do that using satellite imagery. Basically every single day, the satellite takes a picture of the ground. And the picture includes a bunch of different information of all of the bands of the electromagnetic spectrum. I then compute an index called NDVI. And basically, if the crops are greener, the NDVI is higher, meaning that the crops are healthier. So over the season, I continue to monitor the NDVI. And if the NDVI is significantly lower than average, I know that for that location, the crop yields are likely to be much lower. This could be a warning sign of a potential food crisis after the harvest. So this prize also came along with a $250,000 prize. What are your plans to, to put that money to work? Everything in the last couple of days has been happening so fast. I still haven't gotten a chance to think about it, but I know that I will be able to use the money uh, in the future, whether that's creating my own startup or using it towards another project or uh, funding graduate school. Um, so for any of those possibilities, I'm so glad that I will have the option to be able to do that. So how did you become interested in science? And whereas maybe some kids might think science is boring or too hard, can you talk a little bit about sort of your journey along the way to not just being successful in your project, but also kind of how you move along from, from start to finish on a project? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that science is much more interesting when you connect it to you and you connect it to things that you care about. So the first science fair project I did was when I was in seventh grade. And the root of it is that I am an avid skier. I love skiing. There's a ski hill 10 minutes away from my house, but sometimes we get really good snow and other years we get almost no snow at all. I had heard that this was tied to El Nino and I wanted to see if that was true for myself. So I did a very simple project where I downloaded 
weather station data for Los Alamos, New Mexico, and I downloaded El Nino index. And then I found correlations between the two and I actually was able to get a five month lead time for a prediction on how good the ski season is going to be. This was extremely interesting to me because it was a topic that I cared about. And I could make something that other people in my community care about as well. Even to this day, some people come, still come up to me and ask me whether they should buy a season pass. So to anyone interested in doing science or even if someone's on the fence, I would say to make the science something that you care about, something that's really exciting that could give you the potential to help your community even. And I think that big data analysis and computer programming is a great way to do this. That sounds like great advice, especially for teachers and parents right now who maybe aren't quite sure what to do with students who um, have had to change their learning models so much. I'm curious if you have any other advice for teachers and parents who might be interested in connecting their kids and their students to science projects and kind of igniting that love like you have. So I mentioned this a little bit, but I'm going to expand on it, which is uh, I would recommend for any student to learn computer programming. Computer programming gives students the power to do real science at a young age. You don't have to have any sort of fancy degree. You just have to uh, you can download a data set on any topic you're interested in, and that can be biology, that can be the stock market, that can be the environment, anything that you want, there's data out there for it. And then um, I like using Python, I think it's great for beginners, but there's a ton of other programming languages out there. Um, so students can download data and then do very simple calculations like correlations and best fit lines, and the power of those is amazing it can lead to so much research and passions and real world impact. Awesome, Lillian, thanks for talking about that. I'm curious, your future plans, you alluded to them a little bit, but um, what are your plans for college and moving beyond college? So in a couple of weeks, I will actually get to fly to Boston where I'm going to go to Harvard. I plan to major in applied math and molecular biology. And I'm also very interested in computer science. I'm excited to continue doing research at Harvard and just exploring new clubs and activities and making new friends. Awesome. Well, Lillian, congratulations. We can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we will let Jean Grant close out the show as always with a few thoughts on the week that was. And you'll hear he's talking a lot about what we started the show with, back to school. We want to make you aware of a Facebook Live we did on Friday afternoon with uh, some school nurses. Um, of course, they're in a virtual mode right now as well, but doing lots of planning and preparing for what it will mean for them when school does come back in. Uh, hopefully after Labor Day. That's what the governor is hoping anyway. But a lot of the burden of dealing with COVID-19 in our schools is going to fall on these school nurses. And so wanted to find out what approach they're taking and how they're coping with all this, not only from the school standpoint, but from a personal level as well. You can find that on the New Mexico and Focus Facebook page, as well as the Focus on New Mexico Facebook group, which we encourage you to sign up for. If you haven't already, just search for Focus on New Mexico and ask to join. It's a great way for us to get engaged with you on a deeper level about the topics we cover each week, the people we should hear from, a little bit of everything there for you. So join in that conversation there. Also a reminder, sign up if you haven't already for our weekly Rland newsletter chock full of great environmental news and updates and other reporting coming to you straight from the desk of Laura Paskus, our Arland correspondent. Happy to be bringing that to you. You can sign up for that newsletter by going to NewMexicoInFocus.org and uh, encourage you to sign up today, share that with folks, get folks signed up for that important update each week. We have a lot more in store for you again next week on the show as we bear down into election season. It's going to be a busy couple of months, but we're thrilled to have you along. Always appreciate your time and your energies, and just give us a shout. Let us know what you think about anything we talk about on the show. 
We are there. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. You can find us anywhere you need to. Let us know what you're thinking. We will see you next week. And first and foremost, we hope that you all stay safe and you stay healthy. See you again next week on New Mexico in Focus. Isn't that story about Lillian Peterson from Los Alamos winning that contest amazing? Good on her and her family. It's a reminder of the importance of education and how it unleashes our creativity no matter what age you are. Now, APS and districts across New Mexico started school this week, albeit remotely. It was kind of fascinating to see so many parents post the traditional first day of school outfits, just no backpacks. <laughs> Even more fascinating were the shots of youngsters leading into laptops on makeshift school desks. This is our reality. Another reality is the challenge faced by our school nurses. I had the chance to discuss the issues with three local nurses via our New Mexico in Focus Facebook group. There's also important information for parents on how to keep your child safe as possible if and when in-school classes resume. You can find it on our New Mexico in Focus Facebook page. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.